so this morning we're going to talk about why I'm not. And uh, uh, if you are any of the isms, uh, uh, we welcome you. I think it's so very important that we have very honest and rational and open discussions about what we believe and what we don't believe. I don't think they should be um, uh, um, uh, physical contests where we see who's the strongest and can beat up the other. I don't believe they should be emotional contests of, of emotional leverage. I don't believe they should be um, um, a, a contest of wits where we see who can come up with the gotcha line. I think it just needs to be smart and well-reasoned and 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 processed on what this world is and what it is about us and what is reality. And so that's what I want to do in the process of, of really the next couple of months. And, and this is a book project as well. And so it's, it's going to take some stages to get it done. I promise you, if you're on the email list, we'll be emailing you out each Thursday. Brent's good about sending out an email from me that tells you what will be coming the next Sunday. Because you, you may have specific times and places where you want to be here especially. But this morning is the start of why I'm not an atheist. And you have a handout that I will not make it through this morning. But it's a good start and uh, uh, that we'll have here orally. And the handout is much more thorough and will last us for a couple of classes later. I, if you do not know me, and we probably have some visitors here, or there'll be people on the internet that don't know me. And if you don't, my name is Mark Lanier. And I live with a feet and foot in two different worlds. I have a foot in the legal world, and I have a foot in the world of faith. I am a trial lawyer for over the last three decades. I've traveled all over the, the world, but certainly all over the United States, trying lawsuits from coast to coast to coast and all the points in between. And so I've tried cases from from... Uh, uh, New York and New Jersey to California uh, uh, and, and truly all the points in the middle. But in addition to living in that world as a trial lawyer, I live in a world of faith where I get a chance to go all over the country and affirm the faith that I have as a Christian. I think it's extremely important for anybody who's watching this or who is here today or who ultimately may read the book that God willing will come out of this. I think it's important that they know going into it who I am and what I believe because we need to filter what we hear by who's doing the talking. If you're a Christian and you're hearing me, the odds are you're going to like what you hear. And you're going to say, man, that guy, he's nailed it. Because that guy, me, agrees with you. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that I am because I'm not standing up here without having already made a determination of what I believe to be true. And I'm disingenuous or I'm deceptive if I'm not open to you about that, because you need to filter it. You need to recognize that, hey, that guy up there 
is coming from his own belief system. So I'm going to cross my arms a little bit and listen to see if he's making sense and being fair. I'll tell you, I was talking to my daughter Rachel about this yesterday. And she said, Dad, you really ought to add another chapter. And I said, because I was telling her what all we would be covering in the book. And I said, what other chapter? And I thought, is she going to want me to talk about, uh, Brent mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses or, or something else, uh, uh, a Baha'i or some of the other faiths in the, in the world. And she said, no, you ought to do a chapter on why I'm not one of those kinds of Christians. And I knew exactly what she meant because there are some people who, who, who advocate a Christian faith that frankly, I, I'm not one of those. So if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, don't write me off as one of those. Just listen and let's see if we can find some things to talk about that maybe might challenge you in your worldview as you listen to how I've thought through mine. Because you see, I have a foot in two worlds and that's important. The world of law and the world of faith because... I don't really have a line between those two worlds like I put on that slide. You see, for me, those all exist in the same place. I am a single guy in the sense... Don't worry, Becky. I'll fix that. I am a single guy in the sense that I have a single world that I live in. I'm a happily married man. But as, as a lawyer and a man of faith... I don't come to church and put on my church hat and then when I leave church, take it off and put on my law hat. Rick Meadows here. Rick. Stand up, Rick. Rick's one of the lawyers at my law firm. Everybody give Rick a round of applause. Thank you. Now, Rick knows me for 10 plus years. And I think if you had him totally by yourself without me there, and you ask him, he would affirm for you that I try really hard not just to live my faith in the practice of law, but for our purposes in this class, I take the practice of law into my faith. Let me tell you what I mean. The practice of law... When you go to law school, Mel's a lawyer. Where's Mike? Moriarty. Mike's a lawyer. Ken Shortreed. Where's Ken? Now, uh, back there. Okay, we've got uh, uh, Renee Kennedy. I don't know if she's here this morning. Uh, sh- sh- we've got a lot of people who are lawyers who come here. Okay. They will tell you, when you go to law school, and that is the Texas Tech School of Law, on the slide, in case you thought it was Harvard. A lot of people get that confused. When you go to law school, it changes the way you think. It just does. The first week or two of law school is usually an orientation time where they have professors who teach you what law school is going to be like or instruct you in how you need to study. And in our law school, there was a professor in orientation that said, 
law school will change the way you think. You will become less human as you become more of a lawyer. You will start thinking critically. You will start discerning arguments. You will think about argumentation theory differently. You'll think about logic differently. And it's being said to a group of people who've all gotten into law school because they took an LSAT, law school aptitude test, which is basically a logic exam anyway. So you're drawing from a pool of people who hopefully tend to think logically, and then you are indoctrinating them. And it does start changing the way you think. The professor said, you'll notice it over breakfast when you start reading the warranty on the toaster (laughs) and enjoying it. That's when you'll realize you're becoming less human and this weird beast we call a lawyer. But law school, it drives critical thinking and precision of thought. And it drives it in such a way, not only in the various classes, but in some classes in particular, for example, evidence. Every law school requires every law student to take a course in evidence. The rules of evidence are based on logic and argumentation theory. So they deal with issues about how do you make sure evidence is authentic, what evidence is relevant to an issue being discussed or debated, how you establish relevance, what direct evidence is admissible because it seems to be credible, etc. And one of the things we learned... And one of the things that is enforced in courtrooms all across the world, certainly in America, is that there is direct evidence and there is circumstantial evidence. Both are acceptable. Now, let me tell you why I'm giving you all of this as a primer. I've tried really hard to read the books and the claims of atheists in preparing for this class why I'm not an atheist. And I've read them anyway in my life to see if they make sense, to test what I believe. And so in the process of reading those, one of the things that has stunned me is how poorly trained in argumentation and evidence, so many of these writers seem to be. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But the courthouse is where we make major decisions for life based upon evidence. After thousands and thousands of years of human history, the apex, the zenith, the high water mark of justice has been found to be in our Western civilization court systems, specifically America, we have enough confidence in our courts that we'll use them to determine which parent gets custody of a child in a divorce. That we'll use them to determine whether or not to bankrupt a company 
or whether or not to take the life or the liberty away from a criminal. Do the courts always get it right? Oh, no, they don't. But they come closer than anything else that we've been able to come up with at finding the truth. And so these rules are rules that are used in evidence to see what can be proven such that life can go on based upon that proof. And you use direct evidence, you use circumstantial evidence. Let's take that basic case. Driver Dan runs a red light and hits plaintiff Patty. And yes, they go hire the lawyers, do we cheat them and how? It's the way lawyer, law professors write their exams, okay? I just And they laugh when they do it. Um, Driver Dan arguably runs a red light and hits plaintiff Patty and kills her. Now, the relatives of plaintiff Patty come to me and they say, Mark, we want to hire you. Driver Dan ran a red light and killed Patty. And I say, okay, let's see what the evidence is. Is there direct evidence? Now, direct evidence means an eyewitness, generally. Did someone stand on the corner or driving behind or driving before and see driver Dan run a red light such that they can come into court and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help them God and say... I saw driver Dan run the red light. If so, I have direct evidence. But there's also circumstantial evidence. Let me take it out of the ran the red light case and let me put it into a fraud case. One of the things I have to prove in a fraud case is that someone intentionally misrepresented or defrauded someone. The elements are worded a little bit differently, but at the risk of not making this a law school class, that's in essence what I've got to prove, is that there was an intentional deceit. Now, how are you ever going to have direct evidence that someone intended to defraud someone? I mean, I guess you could ask them. Did you intentionally defraud my client? No? Okay, I lose. Darn, I thought I was going to get him. He wavered. Now, you never have direct evidence. You have circumstantial evidence. You can find the motive. You can find the opportunity. You can find consistent actions. You can find places where the person could have gone left, but instead went right. You can see where they affirmed the misrepresentation. You can see where they did it repeatedly. Even after people came up to them and said, hey, you're misrepresenting that. Oh, I won't do it anymore. And then they do it four or five more times. Now, they're not, you don't have direct evidence. They're not saying, yes, I did it on purpose. 
But it's pretty clear. Because you've got circumstantial evidence. And you've got to be careful. Circumstantial evidence can also be wrong. So can direct evidence. So you've got to weigh it. One of the things you have to weigh is the credibility behind the evidence. Some people just shout credibility when they testify as a witness. Other people don't. And so you've got to be able to weigh that. But you learn these rules of logic and argumentation. You learn these rules of evidence. You put the evidence together. You see what's direct. You see what's circumstantial. And then you go about proving your case. I'm sure you've heard the phrase burden of proof. Burden of proof is something that is required by a party who's taking a position they want you to believe. If I'm going to prove that driver Dan ran the red light, I have a burden to prove it. If I represent plaintiff Patty, she's been killed because driver Dan hit her, and we're going to say driver Dan ran the red light, I have to prove driver Dan ran the red light. If I've got no witnesses at all, and I've got no direct evidence, and I've got no circumstantial evidence, all I've got is dead plaintiff Patty and driver Dan who drove the car that hit her. I lose. I lose even if driver Dan really ran the red light because I have a burden to prove that he ran the red light. And if I cannot prove it, I cannot win. Does that make sense? Okay. I pulled this slide off of a science-type, blog-type internet site that's trying to put forward good logical teachings and seems uh, perhaps to even question issues of faith. But I really like this slide. TheLogicOfScience.com The burden of proof. The person making the claim bears the burden. So if I'm going to claim that scientists are lying, doctors are being paid off, there's a global conspiracy, etc. The burden's on me to prove it. I've put in your handout actual quotations from a court record of a trial I did recently. There was a doctor, an orthopedic surgeon, who was testifying that this metal-on-metal hip implant was a fine invention, and there was nothing wrong with it. I was trying to prove that it was a defective invention, and there was a problem with it, and it had hurt my clients. Now, I've proven my case. I hope I've carried the burden of proof. But the defendants are putting on their case and they called this doctor and this doctor gets on the stand and he tells this jury, I mean, bluntly tells this jury, there's nothing wrong with this invention. Metal on metal works fine. I get to cross-examine him. I start with about 10 minutes till 5 on the evening. And we quit court at 5 o'clock. So I started out, and I wanted the jury to understand his bias. So I started out by pointing out that 
He told the jury, when asked by the company's lawyers, that he's made over his lifetime maybe a million bucks or so from manufacturers who've paid him to help them with their products. I knew that that amount was bogus. I knew he'd made in excess of $6 million. And he was acting differently than was true to the jury. So I started cross-examining him. I said, sir, you told the jury you've made about a million bucks or whatever. Well, that's, that's right. I said, well, that's not true, though. The truth is you've made, by my count, I'm up to like six and a half million. And he accuses me of lying in front of the jury. I mean, I, I put the exact quotation from the court reporter's official record in your handouts. Well, you're not telling the truth, he said. You're just making stuff up. Judge calls a recess, and during the evening, I start pulling all of the canceled checks that I've got that show this fella getting paid royalties, including for one type of, a, of an implant that he swears he never got a dime on. And I start showing them the next morning. And the jury immediately understands this guy is either an imbecile with no memory at all or someone who's getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars by the company to come testify untruthfully. But I've got a burden to prove and if I can't carry my burden of proof, I lose. Now here's the key. With that as your law school primer, let me tell you why I'm not an atheist. You need to know two different words to understand this. Make sure we're on the same page. The word atheist and the word agnostic. If we could come over to the Elmo for a moment. There is a marvelous Greek word. It is in Greek, theos. Theos, which we would write in English as T-H. E-O-S, theos, and that O-S is the ending, means God. Now, in Greek, if you want something to mean not, if you want something to mean not, you can put the letter A, alpha, in front of it. A, theos, means not God. So, a theos in Greek means no God. And then, of course, in English, we add ism when we want to talk about a school of thought or a belief. If you believe that... Um, uh, Capital is what's going to drive an economy. Then you are a you believe in capitalism. If you believe that that uh, a social equality is going to drive your economy and society, then you believe in socialism. If you believe in you know isms, okay. So atheism means a belief that there is no God. You with me? Now, 
There's another Greek word that's gnosis. Gnosis. And good, that's a long O. Sorry, it looks like a W. Gnosis means knowledge or what you know. Now, you can put in front of gnosis A. And that means you don't know. Not know. A gnosis or an agnostic is someone who doesn't know if there's a God. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. They just don't know. You see the difference? I'm talking this week and then in, a, in, in another coming up lesson about atheism. Why I'm not an atheist who says there is no God. I don't think you can be rationally logical and be an atheist. I can't get there. I'll show you why. Now, if you want to ascribe to some of those views, I can see how you could logically answer the entire class I'm going to teach you today by saying, okay, I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there's not. I don't know. I don't know if we can know. I'm not sure that question can be answered sufficiently to me. That I will teach about in probably about a month. Today I'm just teaching about those people who say, I'm an atheist. Those people who say there is no God. And I'm confident there's no God. You see, the lawyer in me says, before you make a decision that way, you need to look at scales. We use the scales of justice in, in a courtroom. And you need to weigh the evidence. So on one side of the scales, you can place all of the credible evidence that there is no God. And then you argue from that evidence. So you put your evidence down, and then from that evidence, you try to argue to effective conclusions. So what is the evidence that there is no God? Credible evidence. We don't just throw it out there willy-nilly. It needs to have credibility to it. And that's the evidence on one side. And then the evidence on the other side is all of the credible evidence that there is a God. And you put that credible evidence on the other side and you see if the burden of proof has been met. Has Can someone prove to you there is no God? And I can't find how to get there. There are these four really popular writers who've made a boatload of money off their books and the lecture circuit. They've been called the four horsemen of the new atheism. These are the four big... <laughs> evangelists for atheism, the belief there is no God. Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris, uh, undergrad philosophy degree out of Stanford. And then he's got a PhD from UCLA in neuro mind mapping. He's a neuroscientist, but he, you read most of his stuff, he seems to spend most of his time talking about why there's no God. His big selling book that I, I'm using in this class is The End of Faith. 
He's got some other books as well. Next to him, the late Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens uh, uh, was a journalist, but he's one who had a very good way with words. He's dead now. He died of cancer recently. In fact, uh, though he's British, he died uh, at MD Anderson Cancer Center here in Houston. But but he's he was very witty in a very acidic way. And so he could uh, write and say things that had bite, that sound really punchy. And um, uh, it made him very popular on the lecture circuit and his writings very uh, uh, often entertaining to read. An adamant atheist. Uh, the book I've, I've used for some of this is The Portable Atheist. He's got more. Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, a, a British philosopher and professor. Uh, Richard Dawkins uh, wrote a book that was a New York Times bestseller called The God Delusion. Shep Hoffman sent it to me, Rick. Uh, Shep's a dear friend of mine, and he and I talk about these things some. He's a, he's a really good, solid lawyer. The God Delusion. And then the last of the four horsemen is Daniel Dennett, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. And these are the men that are called often the four horsemen of the new atheism. New atheism is a phrase that's out because over the last 10 to 15 years, there's a new atheism that's really being spoken out. If you were going to a college or a university, I can almost assure you someone you meet somewhere is going to talk to you about the new atheism or they're going to have read these books and they're going to ridicule Christian faith and they're going to challenge it as being logically silly, superstition, something that needs to go away like belief in Zeus. That's even happening on some high school campuses. The internet's riff with this. These are bestsellers. People see these at their local bookstore. They buy these books. They read these books. And they get entranced at times by these books. And then I know some people who don't read the books because they think, I don't want to read that. It might might shake me down. Well, I want to tell you something. I've read them. didn't shake me down. It angered me. And I say this respectfully to these folks. I don't think I'll meet Christopher Hitchens in this life. He's dead and gone. But if I met one of these other gentlemen, I would say it respectfully. But I truly believe that what they put in here is not really proof of atheism. It's sleight of hand. It's magician stuff. It's rhetorical hocus pocus It's word games and argumentation games. It's not transparent. It's hidden. But in a court of law, what their evidence is would be bounced out, in my opinion. The main thing that they do that I want to talk about today, and the next session we'll talk about the others, is they shift the burden of proof. Now, if you're going to try and prove atheism to me, you got a burden of proof. I want you to prove it. Here I am. Prove to me there is no God. 
they can't do that. So they don't do that. Instead, they say, no, we're going to assume there's no God until you prove there is a God. Well, now, if you're an agnostic, I'll, that's, that's fair. You can say, hey, I don't know until you prove it. And so we'll get to that in a few weeks. But no, not an atheist. You can't do that. You can't sit there and affirmatively assert there is no God unless you got some proof. And that's not what they have. They use these little logical fallacies. They use these rhetorical tricks. Two is a number. One is a number. Therefore, two is one. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. You gotta, you, 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 you could take, with all due respect, if he's watching, Sam Harris, your book, The End of Faith. You could take that book and use it as a textbook for logical fallacies. Because he uses, he just does one right after another, right after another, right after another. I'll look at those in more detail in an upcoming class. I'll also tell you, you get those a lot on those internet websites, why there is no God.com and things like that. I mean, it's just pretty, some of the things you just look at, you just say, oh my goodness, are you thinking about what you're saying when you write this? But some of it's very tricky the way it's done. Sam Harris is a really good writer. Watch some of his debates on YouTube. He's a good debater. But if you strip out the veneer and you strip out the words and you strip out the, the gamesmanship, what they've really done is shifted the burden of proof. And that's not right. I mean, I'd love to stand up representing Plaintiff Patty and say, Your Honor, I don't have any proof that driver Dan ran the red light. However, I would like to assume he read the red light and make him prove he didn't. Well, the judge is going to sit here and say, Lanier, get out of my courtroom. You're wasting my time. And rightfully so. If you're going to make an affirmative claim, even if the affirmative claim is there is no God. Now, some people will immediately say, wait a minute. You can't prove a negative. Oh, yes, you can. Sure you can. I can prove to you that there's not an elephant standing right here. You know how? Work with me. An elephant has a trunk and big long ears and we know what they are genetically and, and, and we know what size they are and we know what a real living live elephant is. And if there was one standing right here, you'd be able to see him because elephants are not invisible. But you can look and there's no elephant there. I can do my arm and I would not be able to do that through an elephant. There, that's another proof there's no elephant there. And you might be saying, well, that's different. No, that's practical, real proof. Well, that's not scientific proof. Well, fine. Who says scientific proof's the only way to prove something? 
if scientific proof's the only way to prove something, then, then the, I can't prove I love my wife. But I promise you, I know I do. The burden of proof is on whomever is making the assertion. That's the way it is. So, how do they do this? Well, one of the things people love to appeal to, do you remember the old astronomer Carl Sagan, now dead, real popular on TV? He was a, a real skeptical guy about things he didn't see. You know, I like the astronomers who tell me that UFOs are real because to me that's just really entertaining or at least going to enter into a great debate. The astronomers who say, no, no such thing as a UFO, First of all, I'd like to say go to Roswell, New Mexico. Second of all, I don't know if there are or not. I'm an agnostic on that issue. I don't know. But I'm sure not an atheist. I'm not going to say that there are not. I don't know. But I'll tell you this. Carl Sagan wrote a book, The Demon Haunted World. And in chapter 10 of that book, he tells a parable or a story, The Dragon in My Garage. And people use this all the time when they're trying to prove there is no God. I've pulled the pages out. I'm not sure if you can read them from where you are. I want to read it to you. Shall we read it together? A fire-breathing dragon lives in my garage. This is a man talking. Suppose I seriously make such an assertion to you. Surely you'd want to check it out, see for yourself. There have been innumerable stories of dragons over the centuries, but no real evidence. What an opportunity. Show me, you say. I lead you to my garage. You look inside, see a ladder, empty paint cans, an old tricycle, but no dragon. Where's the dragon, you ask? Oh, she's right here, I reply, waving vaguely. I neglected to mention she's an invisible dragon. You propose spreading flour on the floor of the garage to capture the dragon's footprints. Good idea, I say, but this dragon floats in the air. Then you'll use an infrared sensor to detect the invisible fire. Good idea, but the invisible fire is also heatless. You'll spray paint the dragon and make her visible. Good idea, except she's an incorporeal dragon. No flesh. And the paint won't stick. And so on. I counter every physical test you propose with a special explanation of why it won't work. Now, what's the difference between an invisible, incorporeal, floating dragon who spits heatless fire and no dragon at all? If there's no way to disprove my contention, no conceivable experiment that would count against it, what does it mean to say that my dragon exists? Your inability... To invalidate my hypothesis is not at all the same as proving it true. Claims that cannot be tested, assertions immune to disproof, are veridically worthless, whatever value they may have in inspiring us. This is the the way this generally goes. Carl Sagan's invisible dragon is like your invisible God. You can't show him to me. I can't spray paint him because you say he's incorporeal. Can't dust flour on the ground. You say he doesn't walk there. Can't shoot him with infrared. He doesn't have heat. 
And the idea that you believe there's a God is as silly as the idea that there's an invisible, incorporeal, non-heat-bearing, float-in-the-air dragon in my garage. Now, you listen to that. You think, ugh. Ugh, what are we going to do? Well, I want to tell you something. That's a bunch of hooey. First of all, if I'm cross-examining the fella and I want to prove whether or not there's a dragon in the garage, I'm not going to have any trouble doing it. First thing I'm going to do is say, okay, let's agree on some terms. What's a dragon? Here's what the Oxford English Dictionary says is a dragon. You agree or disagree? What do you want a dragon to be? And when we agree that a dragon is like some mega-sized lizard with wings that breathes fire and has scales and you can see them, then I'm going to prove that there's no dragon in the garage. If you're going to tell me a dragon is a concept and no more, then I'm going to say, well, maybe there is a dragon in your garage. Heavens, you may have a DVD of Game of Thrones with Daenerys Targaryen, the mother of dragons. And, and you know, I, yeah, you can make those arguments, but you can prove that. You can go out there and figure it out. Is there such a thing as an incorporeal, non-heat-bearing non-step-on-the-floor, invisible dragon. Well, let's look at science to see. Let's look at the, what would we expect to exist if such a thing were to exist. There are logical ways you can go about this. Now, it may not seem scientific, but that doesn't make it illogical. There's lots... Here's, here's my example. Before I get it, let me... How are we doing time? Yeah, we got time. What Sagan really did is he did a, um, a modern-day, more exaggerated version of Bertrand Russell's teapot. Bertrand Russell, very, very smart Oxford logician, philosopher, died, I think, around 1970, an atheist. And he had this teapot. Here's, here's an excerpt of it that is quoted by uh, uh, Dawkins in The God Delusion. Many orthodox people speak as though it were the business of skeptics to disprove received dogmas rather than of dogmatists to prove them. Let me put that into modern English. Many people say, well, if you want to, if you don't believe there's a God, you have to prove that there is no God. Instead of someone having to prove to you that there is a God. Well, I, I, no, 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 no. If I'm talking to someone who says, I'm up in the air, I don't know if there is or not. I do think I've got a burden to show why I think it's reasonable to believe there's a God. I think there's proof there's a God. I've got that obligation. I'll wholeheartedly go after it. But if I've got someone who's wholeheartedly saying there is no God, that's their dogma. And they got to prove it. This, of course, is a mistake. If I were to suggest that between the Earth and Mars, there's a China teapot revolving around the sun in an elliptical orbit, no one would be able to disprove my assertion, provided I were careful to add the teapot's too small to be revealed, even by our most powerful telescopes. But if I were to go on to say that, since 
my assertion cannot be disproved. It's intolerably presumption on the part of the human reason to doubt it. And I'm talking nonsense. If, however, the existence of such a teapot were affirmed in ancient books, taught as sacred truth every Sunday, instilled into the minds of children at school, hesitation to believe in its existence would become a mark of eccentricity and entitle the doubter to the attentions of a psychiatrist or an inquisitor, if you want to live at the time of the Spanish Inquisition. This is what Bertrand Russell is saying. If I want to assert there's a teapot, China teapot, rounding the sun, there's no way to prove it. And if I say to you, if you say, Mark, I think you're a bit nuts. I don't think there's a China teapot rotating around the sun. It will prove to me that there's not one. Bertrand Russell is saying, no, 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 no. If you want to make that absurd of a claim that there is one, you need to prove there is one. Bless you. I, I say, whoever's making the claims got to make the proof. If I want to say there's no teapot orbiting the sun, then I'm going to do the following. I'm going to define what a teapot is. We're going to talk about where they come from. Here, I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle. Here is the spout. When I get my steam up, hear me shout, tip me over and pour me out. We know what a teapot is. All right. How do teapots, we know what gravity is. We know you, teapots don't exist in nature without being made. All of those are reasonable things to believe. So absent someone going up in orbit and throwing a teapot out on a spacewalk, which at the time that Bertrand Russell gave this example didn't exist, how are we going to get a teapot out there? It physically can't happen. And a teapot is a physical creation of this universe. So we can figure that out. That's not a hard thing. You just test it. Here's the catch, though. What these people do is they'll take an illustration like that that's not explained fully and not tested, really, and then they'll try and extrapolate it onto the issue of whether or not there's a God. That's a huge leap. I'll take that same approach and put it to a Woody Guthrie song. Woody Guthrie's now dead. Has been dead for a long time, but before he died, he wrote a song. This train is bound for glory. This train is bound for glory. This train, this train is bound for glory. Don't carry nothing but the righteous and the holy. This train is bound for glory. This train. Don't carry no gamblers. No big shot ramblers. No liars and thieves. Streamlined in a midnight flyer, this train don't carry no liars. Now, I want to say to you something. I believe that what Woody Guthrie meant by this train is economic inequality. You say, oh, that's not what he means by that. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got a teapot issue here. 
You're going to have to, you know, who's going to have to prove this? Can you prove to me that he didn't mean that? Do I have to prove that he did mean that? By scientific proof, I got no shot. But I want to tell you something. He meant something, whether we can figure it out or not, doesn't deny the truth that he meant something. But we're never going to prove it. You don't prove an incorporeal reality like you do a corporeal one. Nobody's suggesting that God is a creation of humanity on this planet like a china teapot. If he was, then maybe we'd have a different set of rules to try and figure out whether or not he exists. But you can't take an approach like that. That's a magician's sleight of hand. There are different things that are legitimate ways to prove different truths. And you use them. But you don't use the wrong measure of proof. If I've got me that number one from Chick-fil-A with a diet Dr. Pepper, and I challenge you how much diet Dr. Pepper is in my Chick-fil-A cup, you need to give me a measured answer, don't you? Might be 12 ounces, might be 16 ounces. But if I tell you, no, 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 tell me how much Dr. Pepper is in my cup using Fahrenheit. Well, you can't use Fahrenheit. That's for what the temperature is of the diet, Dr. Pepper. It's not how much. Well, no, no, no. No, no, no. No, use Fahrenheit. Well, you can't. Don't tell me to use what we use for testing or allegorizing and metaphoring or whatever, what we use for a a physical teapot made for humanity and expect me to use that kind of a test on whether or not there's a God that's outside of nature. God's not a physical part of this universe in the sense of, of he's in the tree. And so you can't use those. That doesn't mean there's no proof. There's a difference between direct and circumstantial evidence. But you've got to know what you're looking for. So what I want to do when I get to bring this lesson home is, and we're done, we've got some points for home, but what I want to do is I want us to have a chance to go through those proofs for God But before we get there, don't let someone be an atheist. Look, if you're in here and you're an atheist, don't be. You're not going to be able to prove to anybody there's no God. The proofs aren't there. Be an agnostic. Say, I don't know. Doesn't seem to me there's one. I'm not convinced. I think the odds of it are pretty slim, one out of a thousand. But don't say there's no way there's a God. You can't prove that. And if you're going to make that assertion, that's your burden of proof. I'll look at the arguments people try to use to prove it later. But for now, here are your points for home. Paul wrote these three verses to the Romans. Starts with Romans 1.19. What can be known about God is plain to them. This is to the Gentiles. Because God has shown it to them. God's saying there's evidence of him in this world. And I believe it. 
and I'm looking forward to showing it, but we need to understand what we're looking for. We can't be thinking we're looking for something using physical science rules that we'd use for determining if two plus two is four. That's measuring diet Dr. Pepper by Fahrenheit instead of ounces. It's the wrong... Look, I can't go into a courtroom and prove anything that way of of much import. You can't prove what a song means. You can't prove whether you love someone. You can't prove anything that's incorporeal, that's not physical, by the laws of the physics. Physics laws are for physical things. So we've just got to keep that in our head. We've got to understand what we're looking for. Next point for home, Paul continues. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So you're going to see evidence of God. You're going to see trails of God. You may not see... um, um, you're, you're not going to see the invisible God. I mean, that's one of the things people say, all right, if God is there, show him to me. Well, he's not a genie in a bottle where you rub the bottle and poof, he appears. Our God is no genie. I wouldn't want a genie in a bottle. I need to recognize what I see. So we need to work on that. And then finally, Paul finishes, although they knew God, They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they need, they became fools. I gotta tell you, some of the most, there are very enlightened agnostics. But the atheists that I've spent my time around, by and large, they've got some emotional issue going on generally. Just to be honest with you. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm judging them harshly. If so, I apologize. But we've just got to be real careful. And and Christians, we have the same trouble too. We all need to remember humility. I mean, your brain weighs three pounds on average. It's the size of two fists. We're doing pretty good to understand what we've got. But let's not get too uppity about what our little gray cells are firing off in these neuron connections, okay? We're going to talk about all of this in the coming weeks. God bless you. May I bless you in the name of Jesus. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless those who are hearing this, whether they know Jesus, understand Jesus, any of that at all, Father. I still pray through Jesus that you will bless them and open the eyes of their heart. Let them hear you. Let them see you for who you are. Father, give us grace and give us love. Give us mercy and gentleness as we walk in this world proclaiming the truth of you, Lord God. Amen.